This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. And this is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of going where no man has gone before, and then you find out that there's no reason to be there in the first place. This week we are talking about Fringeworthy and we're talking about exploring the star platforms. You know those things down the pathway at the very end that no one goes to? Those things. That's what I'm talking about. The way the fringe paths are laid out, you have a prime world, which is then connected to an alternate platform, which is then connected to a system platform, which goes to places on the prime's solar system. And then you get connected to a star hub, and the star hub goes to eight platforms, which go to eight worlds within 40 light years of the prime. And then you shake it all about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so... It's a long way out to the star platforms, but there's an awful lot of planets out there. 64 connections. But eight different solar systems. But in most campaigns, little if anything is ever done with the star platforms. So we want to address that and maybe give you some reasons to go out there and spend some time out there. We have mentioned this a little bit in some of our other podcasts, but we really want to bring it all together for this and talk about you know exploring the star platforms, what it's going to take, why do it, and why not do it. So let's jump right in there. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, John, the uh, star platform is actually uh, the equivalent of a system platform off in another star system. So it has eight portals that are 25 foot that go to any any number of locations not of the prime. So what kind of places could it go to? From the looks of it, it's going to different stars. In, within the solar system, where would it go to? Oh, well, yeah, any planets that are there, any, any uh, interesting moons that the Chameleon thought were, would, would be interesting to go to. It's more than likely one of those portals or one or more of those portals may actually go to a, a terrestrial-like planet. Now, when I say terrestrial, I don't mean Earth-like. I mean terrestrial, meaning it, you may be able to walk around in shirt sleeves only if you're inside of a spacesuit. Uh, but it, otherwise, it's kind of Earth-like. Thanks to Hubble and various uh, astronomers, we happen to know about nearby planets with real nearby planets near Earth. Uh, I've actually got the... Uh, there's a wonderful list of them in Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge, uh, which will post links. Uh, I'll double-check and make sure we got links to these in the uh, in the uh, show notes. And that's very useful when you talk about the Earth Prime one because it's supposedly very, very close to our own uh, world. You know, it's sort of our stand-in for our, the Earth in which we live on. 
But any of the alternates, they are not necessarily going to be the same. Because they are alternates, the stellar events could have been slightly altered. So many of those star systems could be radically different than what it is in our universe. Yeah, I mean, like, if you consider the the uh, Victorian universe, those stars are going to be probably radically different from we have. In fact, probably almost guaranteed every star platform in the Victorian will go will have at least a Earth-habitable world attached to each one of them. Because that's the sort of goes with the genre. There's always a Earth-habitable world at every star. So, boom, just pick the stars you want to go to, and there'll be at least one of them will be Earth-habitable. You're talking about the yeah. Victorian node? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's one of the things we wanted to talk about. There's all these connections, but it it just seems to, to me, and maybe I'm wrong, I'm willing to be disagreed with, but it seems that to Mellor weren't really that interested in the star platforms because uh, there doesn't seem to be, you know, in, in the literature we have and the adventures that we run, it just seems like there's no push out toward that area. Uh, is there any reason for that? I just see it as like they made it like, Okay, yeah, we'll give them this. Okay, if they want to go out beyond their solar system, but yeah, yeah, I, I, the star platforms, I never really saw them as much of anything because you see the alternate dimensions and it's like, oh my God, we have millions of Earths and we can get the same type of stuff from these worlds as we could if we were to go to the star platforms. Even the Termellern, it, it says in the literature for French for the D20, the Termellern were trying to explore their own universe. They did a hyperspace jump, found out that they went into another dimension instead of further in their own dimension. They just looked at the rest of space and said, screw it. We've got infinite number of other universes to go to. So I could see what they're kind of eh about the star platforms. It just seems odd to me that that they would map out all these different nodes. I mean, a node would have so many platforms going to other stars if there wasn't a reason to go to those other stars. As you said, John, there's like eight locations on the star platform. There's only, you know, there, there's only a prime platform and an alternate. There's actually much more places to go in the star area than there is on the actual prime and its alts. I've been thinking about this ever since I suggested this topic. And one reason why we why you might not see Unita push this is that maybe Unita is not involved. I can imagine. Let's step back for a second. According to our, our timeline, in year one, Gordon Conrad becomes the first man to step on Mars. And I can imagine this happening in a couple of ways. One way I can think of is General Borden is able to get a hold of a used Russian spacesuit. And the reason I was saying a used Russian spacesuit is that they're much easier to put on by a small number of people than an American spacesuit. Trust me on that one. Well, American spacesuits are basically designed around the astronaut. They cost a million dollars a piece because of the amount of detail work that goes into them. The Russians are more like putting on one of those old-fashioned uh, diving suits where one size fits all. And General Borden has connections to the get a whole used one. Uh, that can just be refurbished, and it, it only needs to work for six hours as long as the oxygen lasts. So it doesn't need to be absolutely perfect. And Gordon Conrad becomes, you know, the first man to set foot on Mars. Second, that happens. Every major space agency on Earth Prime will have kittens, and then the kittens will have kittens, and then those kittens will have kittens, and they'll start saying, "You're stepping in our territory." 
this is our bellywick and i can see the the formation of the of the united nations space agency that is all the major the, the major players um nasa roscosmos esa cnsa jaxa isro and kari uh that's united states russia european union china japan india and korea these are all these are the major players in space right now. So you're suggesting that there's going to be a political interdiction against explore, mm-hmm. uh, exploring the star platforms. I figure, figure next time Gordon Carrad set, sets, foot, set, sets foot on Mars, it'll be on the 20th anniversary of his first first setting foot on Mars, and he'll be doing so in you know in his dress uniform, no spacesuit allowed, no spacesuit needed, because <laughs> there'll be a base there around the dome on Cydonia. In the Savage Worlds game, I'm putting the, one of the Mars portals in the Cydonian Plains. And for those of you who don't know what Cydonia is on Mars, that's the home of the um, face on Mars. Of course, it's an, in on Earth Prime, it's just a mesa that looks like the face on Mars. You want to see a face on Mars, you got to go to Bureau 13. <laughs> and see, they, they actually have a real face on Mars. <laughs> right. The star platforms... Are actually are any and because they're really system platforms. They're unlike the primes and the alternates in that just because you have eight portals doesn't mean you have to go to eight different locations. There's three portals on Earth Prime's system platform going to Mars. Yep. It makes you wonder what's so interesting about Mars. Yeah, I figure that each one of those. If you if you dig down, I'm going to say each one of those are warps, because the por- the portals have been buried on those by sand dunes or, or by, by erosion over the years. But if you dig down far enough, you'll find the you'll find the ring stations inside of buildings. Uh, in fact, one was a dome that collapsed. So you'll find a ring station and the remains of a dome. Um, potentially, there's a chance of finding a, a crystal key there. If you think about it, you know, you might find a crystal key. Uh, of course, if it is found, it'll probably be found by uh, members of the United Nations Space Agency rather than by UNITA, which means they'll keep that key for their own use because they want to recruit fringeworthy themselves. The system platform becomes the training, training grounds for going to the star platforms. A lot of the technology they'll probably practice first on the system platform. You know, a lot of stuff they're going to need to do. I mean, basically, if you're going to be a fringe knot, uh, instead of a, instead of a fringe-worthy explorer, uh, you need to practice. And what better place to practice than Earth's backyard, so to speak? Okay. Well, now that assumes that uh, first of all, that all this exploration, as such, is going to be done on Earth Prime. Now, I, I don't see why the Victorians or any of the other worlds that we might run into that actually have close to modern or advanced tech wouldn't want to explore their own star platforms and they wouldn't be listening to Earth Prime and its little problem about who's stepping on whose toes. Actually, I'll say the reason why, and I, I agree with you there, and the reason is, is that the United Nations Space Treaty is only for our universe. It doesn't include the other universes. So basically, United Nations Space Agency is only involved in Earth Prime stuff. So yeah, Victorians... Uh, because they have the advantage over us. They can go to Venus, they can go to Mars, and they don't need to wear spacesuits. Not only that, but they have Cavorite. What? I don't think they have Cavorite. You said they did. 
they may have they may so there may have been a professor Cavor, but they yet yet to reproduce his, his formula. How's that? Well, I'm just saying that you've said in an earlier uh, podcast that they had cavorite, which is the material that blocks gravity that was used in the spaceship that took them from the Earth to the Moon, uh, a la the Jules, uh, not the Jules Verne, the H.G. Uh, Wells story. I'll have to listen to that one again, but I was trying, I can't remember if I had limited it to basically the H.G. Wells story, meaning that no one can reproduce the cavorite again because, well, caver is dead. But other than that, well, the point is, is that they, they have materials in the Victorian node. Their physics on that node are slightly different from ours. And so such materials can be made at an a early 19th century technology level. Yeah, and most of the planets have breathable atmospheres. You go to the moons of Jupiter, you can breathe the atmosphere. It's really cold, but you can breathe the atmosphere. Because right. uh, that was the common trope in those kinds of stories, you know. Paul Ponsia. The moon is the only place where you need to actually go under underground to get to where you can breathe, and then you got to deal with the selenites. Well, as long as someone has the sniffles, it takes care of itself. Yeah. But I would agree. The Victorians would be exploring their own star platforms, and yeah, it, it would it, they would you know, try to exploit them as well. Not being able to go out to the uh, star platforms and do actual exploration isn't very much fun once you actually decide you want to do it. Uh, so we we have to assume that some you know that somehow they're able to work it out. So since the French were the only ones who could actually go out to other worlds, uh, I can see where they could say, "Hey, Earth Earth Prime says nobody gets to, to explore our own solar system but us." But when it comes to the star platforms, I think they'd be you know, pretty much of a okay, go go have it. See if you can find something that that can help us do stuff. Oh, we're seeing you one of our uh, fringe knots with you because he's he's been trained to do this stuff, so he'll be your our representative with you guys. Right in the middle and later campaigns, there's going to be specialization amongst the fringe worthy because you're going to have people like, for example, the fringe born who are going to be grown. Literally, uh, they're going to grow up in the service of the of the of IDET. And so there's going to be lots of opportunity for specialization and specialized training that your early explorers like We Lie and, and the rest, they don't get because they're just learning it as they go along. Yeah. Also, I can see some private corporations. I mean, Virgin Galactic would probably turn around and say, you're a pilot and you're fringeworthy. We want to hire you to fly our, fly our vehicles around Mars. And you get to come home every day, more or less. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be true. It's a heck of a commute, though. Yeah, but it's only 200. Well, actually, if you come from Mars, it's only 150 miles. Heck, you can do that in a couple hours. Yeah, but that's still a commute every day. <laughs> it's probably be one of those weekend-type commutes where you have to stay there for most of the week and then come home. All right, so we, we're going out to the star platform. All right, now, Trav... There's two different possibilities. One is that it's a perfectly Earth-like world. It's in the Goldilocks zone where you know, the water's wet and the air is warm and the sun doesn't bake us into cinders the moment we walk through the portal. What kind of environments uh, are we likely to run into and what kind of technology are we going to need in order to effectively do this? Well, we'll use the Star Trek term Class M. Basically, Earth similar, you know, where the nitrogen, oxygen, atmosphere, the various temperate and tropic zones and all that. 
So I said it's in, in the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That that term I never heard that. Is that an actual term like NASA? Okay. Yes, right. it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> or if you want me, you know, more correct, it's the habitable zone around the around the star. But yeah, Goldilocks. That doesn't sound as fun. Well, what type of tech? I mean, if we're going directly driving from the prime to the star platform, which is 150 miles? No, 200 miles. Yeah, it's 50 miles to the alt, 50 miles to the system, 50 miles to the main hub, and then it's 50 miles again to the... I thought in the 92 one that just you went to eight different singular places in eight separate systems, and then I read in D20, it's no, from the star platform... You go to another star platform that's like the system platform for the Prime. The illustrations in the 92 are not accurate. Okay. Yeah, And actually, the, the, stellar, the star hub, actually, it, it's different from the rest because it's all 50, 50 foot. Uh, exactly. That's what I'm saying. If you look on, on the maps, you look on some of the graphics of how the nodes are laid out, you don't see those 50 foot uh, all the way around on the star platform. So yeah, it's 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 a mistake. Yeah. Two hundred miles to the stars. Trav, I mean, could we just go and do it now? I mean, do we have the tech now to be able to effectively uh, explore an alien world? I was actually talking about this with my roommate earlier, and I said unless we do, and I think John may have mentioned this before, a spacesuit that gets its air like the old diving suits that had the hose and the helmet and all that. Because, you know, spacesuits that we have today are computer-controlled. You go through the fringe portal, congratulations, the battery's dead in the computer that regulates your airflow. If you were to do, like, a steam-powered kind of air circulation system hooked to a modern spacesuit, you could go out into... Because if you're exploring for the first time, you're not going to know what atmosphere is there, even if you look through the the pylon. And that's why I was suggesting the uh, the Russian suit, which is... Pretty much, you can you know it can it probably can run in default mode, and you can probably hotwire a uh, fuel cell to it so that once it, once ten minutes have passed, you can flip it on and start getting power. But you can just simply turn the tap on and have air. Okay, <sighs> if that's modern day tech, we can do it. I had looked through the D twenty future books, and I mean a really good thing. It wouldn't come up until PL seven though. A Galpos device. It's like an interstellar GPS that. Even if you don't have satellite relays, it still relies on stellar cartography. So let's, it'd be like a cell phone. You take a picture of the starscape above, and it uses stellar cartography and sees the constellation and says, okay, based on what we see here, you were at this place in the Milky Way. Because all of these star platforms are within 40 light years of Earth. So I mean, the stellar cartography wouldn't be that different. I mean, you just have to worry about, you know, the angle that you're seeing the constellation from. So I would think that would work. But yeah, we could do it if we had the fringe paths with modern tech, with the suit that John mentioned, or with the the steam variable that, you know, I came up with sort of, kind of. You don't have to come up with a steam-driven air pump and all that stuff like that. You can just borrow equipment from scuba diving. A Drager system that uses a rebreather where it uses charcoal and siphons out your CO2 and and, a, and an oxygen O2 bottle that puts oxygen back in, that'll run for an hour and you only need it for 10 minutes. I keep hearing 10 minutes. Why just 10 minutes? That's the time for your, your suit to recover the batteries to start taking a charge again. That's 10 minutes after exiting the portal. 
the solar recharger like you have when you go, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You fire up a, a fuel cell and you start trying to charge your batteries. It takes 10 minutes for the system, your stuff to recover after you exit back out into the real space. Okay. And most spacesuits have an external connection for oxygen anyway, so you hook to that and you live off of that for, like you said, 10 minutes. You only need a small bottle for 10 minutes. You're just borrowing 1980s Drager vest technology. The the rebreather units that like seals use so they don't leave a trail of bubbles. Yeah. Ah, you, okay. The forcible movement through the fringe path is only one sixteenth of an inch a second. It wouldn't be that hard to have a hose that's pressurized and have enough length on the other side that as you go through, you just basically stand there with the hose. It's providing you that oxygen, that external connection until, again, your, your system comes back online. I mean, one sixteenth of an inch per second, what is that in 10 minutes? Right, but that, that depends on the ambient air temperature and everything else you exit into. Otherwise, you're sucking on air that's coming through your hose that's either 200 degrees positive or 200 degrees negative. Why couldn't it be insulated? Because you're then you would have a hose that's six inches in diameter and weighs five pounds per foot. And how's that a bad thing? Um, you ever tried to drag a fire hose? That takes all you got. <laughs> well, I, you're not having to drag the fire hose. You're basically letting this thing push itself through the portal, and then when you uh, and then when your your systems come back online, then you detach from it and start using your internal systems to run yourself. Yeah, I mean, if you want to push air through, you can always have someone uh, yeah, have a hand operated pump on your side, and for ten minutes they're pumping. You've got a gravity motor, John. They they work all the oh, time. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, when that's far in the future, we're talking like, you know, going to Mars, first person to Mars type thing. Well, just an air tank would do that. Yeah, an air tank would do that. In fact, that's probably what they would use there. But yeah, the, you, there's various ways to cheat it. Yeah. Another thing you could do is that you could literally just go and get inside of a sealed habitat, roll that up against the portal and let it roll itself, pull itself through. And then you just stay inside of it until everything's up and kosher. And then you go through the airlock and go out and start exploring. For talking about traveling around, there is the moon buggy, or actually the moon rover, that the new uh, NASA moon rover. Now, the one that it's right now, uh, it's not quite airtight. Uh, so it's not a pressure vessel, but I don't know how much it would take to make it a pressure pressure vessel. But if it could be made into one, hey, you tow that, you put that on the on the back of a truck, tow it along, and as Bruce said, yeah, push it up against the the portal or attach a cable to it and toss the cable through the portal, and let it get pulled on through with people on board. And after ten minutes, you fire up the fuel cells and go tooting around on wherever you're at hmm. in a nice pressure vessel. <laughs> it's open, and you got the spacesuits on. You're in a spacesuit riding a dune buggy. I don't see the problem. Well, no. In this case, the uh, no, the 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 new rover is in, as a as a pressure vessel. Okay. It actually has has a shirt sleeve cabin, and the spacesuits are actually on the back end because the, it was designed for going to the moon. Because one of the problems was every time you went to the moon and came back inside the uh, the the lunar module back in the Apollo days, you also brought the moon along with you too in the form of dust, and that stuff is nasty. It's worse than volcanic ash. Okay. For your lungs and so forth. So this, this, the new design is a bit like the Russian suits. The suits are mounted in the back, and you slip into them like a Russian suit and close up the, the backpack and 
and seal it up and you're ready to go and you won't bring any of that nasty stuff into the cabin. So, in other words, the spacesuits are on the outside of the vehicle. You slide into them from the inside and then you seal them and detach yourself from the vehicle. It also solves another problem, which is that uh, they've never yet created a proper airlock that pumps the air into some kind of a vessel and uh, and then let lets you go out into space, come back in, and then refills it. They evacuate everything that's in the airlock out into vacuum every time, and that's a great loss of, of, of important breathing mixture. So this would actually keep that to a minimum because you'd be sliding into this thing and, and sealing it off, and there wouldn't be that, that kind of a loss like we've been experiencing by evacuating an entire room. Yeah, this the, the rover was designed to actually have a uh, operational range of several hundred miles and a couple of weeks. And it would, you use a rebreathing technology, actually uh, CO2 scrubbers, good for a couple of weeks. So it, it had a nice long, op- you know, uh, you know, operational life. The scrubbers on si- on the space station, how long do they last? Ah, uh, I don't know. I could look it up if you want me to. Well, I, I figure they last a cu- at least a couple of weeks between filter changes and stuff like that. So... They probably last. It probably lasts as long as as nuclear sub scrubbers last. Okay, I, and I have no idea how long they last, since they can provide their own oxygen from the water. So to me, it's like this is this is existed mature technology. It's it, it's not Flash Gordon. It's not like what we really want it to be. But it sounds to me like we would be able to, even if they had nothing but a vacuum or a very low atmosphere, we'd still be able to go and explore some of these worlds, at least partially. We have a portal on Vesta. So the gravity there is a, a might tenuous. Uh, if you sneeze too hard, you go into orbit. Uh, so on that world, I hate to say that the, the rover would be actually worthless because it's second hit a bounce or hit a bump sufficient bump, or if you just simply go too fast, you can easily put yourself into orbit. Right. Well, the whole point of Vesta is not to to be a place for you to explore. It's a staging ground to launch packages and vehicles like satellites and such to go to other locations. Uh, Heinlein said a long time ago that once you get into orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. And so even though Vesta is so far out, it's out in the asteroid belt, still it would take so little energy in order to like send a satellite package over to another place uh, compared to what it takes to launch them out of the atmosphere on Earth that even a large rocket package for a satellite would be very inexpensive and very easy to uh, create. The Delta V needed to, to break orbit on Vesta, like I said, is so... And Delta V is... The ability to change velocity um, for a rocket, the delta v necessary. Uh, you can probably use a fire extinguisher and go into orbit off of off a of Vesta. Well, no one wants to go to orbit, John. They want to actually go to another planet. Yeah, and then you just grab another another one. Then now you can go to the other planets uh, very slowly. Yeah, but it'd be yes, yes, it'd be a place to actually yeah set up a base and you know some and basically either either bring through uh, assembled rockets or assemble rockets to go other places. At that point. Right. Uh, and actually, we were talking about that before this was, okay, so we want to launch a satellite off, say, Mars or some terrestrial world out there. And the problem is that and I've done some research on this. The only mobile launchers for rockets are are the old Russian topols. 
These are designed to launch uh, Soviet uh, ballistic missiles, and they're 71 feet long. And after working out the height of the ramp on the, on the portal, you get about six inches clearance. There is one other possibility, John, and that is a cannon-launched rocket. Shades of the old film where the rocket gets shot in the eye there. Yeah. Shades of Jules Verne. A researcher named Bull was working out a, uh, a, a design, and he was, he was very, being very successful, but he was doing it for the Iraqis. Okay, and he was killed by, by the Mossad in the 80s before he could get his work done. Because I guess the Mossad didn't like the idea of somebody in Iraq being able to fire miss, you know, missiles from a cannon easily. And we're talking about 50 kilogram payloads. Yeah. Part of the problem is, is that uh, while his design probably could put things into orbit, so far no one's ever been able to build electronics that can survive 1,000 Gs of acceleration and not just go... Pfft. If it could take a warhead, it's got electronics in it. We're talking electronics for uh, like a, a, a microsatellite. They're far more delicate than the than the electro- than the fusing needed for for a warhead. John, the thing's not been created. You can't poo-poo it until until it's been proven that it won't work. Yeah, current tech hasn't been able to do it. They tried to make guided warheads for the 16-inch guns on the Iowa up through the 90s, and they couldn't do it. It the, the G's just tear the circuit boards and things apart. Yeah, you'd have to do so, the infamous solid state, you know, solid block of circuitry, you know, and even then, I'm not sure if that would survive. But yeah, we, we haven't tried it yet, so we don't know. Yeah, well, so. and this was a 16 inch gun. Yeah. Now the now Gerald Bull's uh, guns, the one he was going to sell to um, Saddam Hussein, was I think a what. Five foot bore. <laughs> well, it's a sixteen inch gun. Whatever that is. No, 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 no. His no. The one he was going to sell Saddam Hussein was a five foot bore, not sixteen inch bore. It was a five foot bore or four foot bore. It was huge, like sewer pipe. Yeah, but the one he actually was successful at designing was a sixteen inch gun. Yeah, during Project Harp, not the yeah. Harper Two A's, Harper One A. Well, see, the big advantage of the cannon launched was its reusability. You know, most of it of the launching mechanism stayed on the planet. There were a few other designs that might be even better. There's one called Mockingbird. There's going to be a, a really big need to be able to fire packages into orbit. If you have a portal that goes to a place in the solar system, and you got a few years in order for it to get to where it's going, so you can do the telemetry then that's great, but otherwise you may need some kind of a, of a local launching mechanism. The ones I've heard for our Earth that were viable, once again, there was a cannon design. It doesn't shoot tremendously large payloads. No. It does shoot a 250-pound payload. It's sea-based, so it's got a 1,600-meter-long or 1,600-foot-long barrel. So when you go to you load your payload, when you want to fire it, you simply let the, the breech end submerge so it's pointing near vertical. And then it uses hydrogen as the propellant. There was also the Germans came up with something that they were going to use, and it used stage acceleration. Uh, that is, instead of doing it all at once, like Gerald did with his cannon, it did staged accelerations all along the barrel. So that it was always giving constant push on the way down. 
if I remember this guy's barrel system correctly, I think it works the same way the C-based one. It doesn't use like explosives where you bang it off now and then it and then it that's the whole charge. If I remember right, it's just like the C-based one where basically it's kind of like a rocket enclosed in a tube. Yes. It's accelerating the whole time it's traveling through. It's not an instantaneous, that's the whole force. Yeah. It starts out at like it's, 500 pounds of, of force and it climbs and climbs and climbs. And the tube contains that, that propellant and focuses it much more than a rocket would where it's dumping the whole force out against an atmosphere. So it's, com- it's, it's building on a compression wave behind it. Yeah. The biggest problem is that getting rockets down the, down the fringe paths, uh, most, you'd have to take them in sections, which means you end up having have to train your fringe worthy how to assemble a rocket when it gets to the, to the other end. And that's not simple. That's not easy. And it's downright dangerous. Even if you're using solid fuel, uh, uh, rocket cores instead of liquid fuel, liquid fuels, uh, got more punch. But it's much more dangerous, right? You guys seen the YouTube video of the uh, of the rocket motor factory in Texas that blew up? Uh, no, but I've seen. Oh yes, I remember. Yeah, I remember that one. It was the world's largest man-made explosion. Well, yeah, it's like every building for five miles is left only six inches tall. Yeah, but the, the what that wasn't a rocket engine blowing up. That was all the propellant that they were making for rocket engines. Yeah, it was a whole factory, but it wiped out like a five-mile circle. The biggest one was the N1 when it blew up on the st- on the on the launch pad. The N1 was a Russian attempt to uh, beat you know Apollo, and when the N1s blew up on the, on the launch pad and pretty much did a equivalent of a 0.5 kiloton explosion. So yeah, that's pretty big. There were two other methods of getting something up into space that I was aware of that were viable at Earth tech level, our current technology, and economical. It didn't bankrupt you doing it. And there was one that used a pair of side-by-side blimps that raised you several thousand, thousand feet. And then when you got to an altitude you chose to, basically it put ballast in the back end and the noses tilted up. It sort of acted like a gantry and you launched your rocket from there. And it got you 60, 80, 100,000 feet up. Basically, you're trying to get above the the thickest part of the atmosphere. That's usually where you have to push the most. Hmm. Yeah, you had to get above the deepest drag. And the next one is the space plane. You get an air-breathing plane, you get it up to 65, 70,000 feet where it starts gasping, and then the rockets kick in. They climb up to almost orbital, and then you launch your package off of that. Yeah. There's actually a lot of systems out there that can probably be dusted off and refurb and restarted again for simple, you know, control from a, from a planet. So, if you're on a planet that has an atmosphere, okay, then it's better to use something like the Pathfinder, which is a, a high altitude, autonomous, solar powered vehicle. Okay, to go and and use it as your platform for observations and mapping and stuff like that, because that's really what we're talking about here. It's only for the worlds in which you have no atmosphere or the planet itself is too hostile to be on, though I'm not quite sure why you'd want to explore it anyways if you're a fringe-worthy person, since there are going to be other worlds out there that aren't going to be so hostile. That's the two reasons why you want this, and you want to have mapping because worlds are big. 
And you got to decide whether or not exploring this world is worth it. So it's really important for you to get out there and get some kind of intelligence going where you can see whether there's anything on the planet worth spending your time on. If you decide after, a, say, a, a um, survey within, say, within a thousand miles of the, of the portal that, okay, we want to explore this place. Uh, first thing you, you realize is that, okay, okay now we, we need to put some satellites up. You will have to put satellites up because, you, you, well, you need communication. You need to put up communication satellites, uh, either in low, low planetary orbit or you go for, for geosignorance. I don't understand why, John, because that's also the purpose of having something like the Pathfinder. It hangs up in the air, and it acts as your relays for your communications. Once it goes over the horizon... Why would it go over the horizon? Why doesn't it just circle? Okay, but that means you're going to have chains of them to get there. Are you talking talking about having chains of them going around then? It would be a good thing to have redundancy, but why would you have to have that? You have a plane. It's an ultralight. It flies at high altitude. Okay, it's solar powered, and you just simply have it circle the area in which you're interested in. It acts as your as your relay, all your communications, takes your pictures. Bruce, but then, but then, what's in between? If it's over the horizon, then how is it communicating back? Why is it over the horizon, John? You're gonna leave the portal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, and of course, if it's high enough up, I mean, over the horizon means it's like a, a thousand, a couple hundred miles away. You know, if it's high enough up. It's more than a couple hundred, John. I mean, if it's at 40,000 feet flying around, you've got, a lot, you've got a lot of distance. I mean, it doesn't even have to be that far. It can be halfway between, you know, where its viewpoint is halfway between you and where you want to be and still be able to provide communication between the two areas. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're doing searching the rest of the planet, you'll need some sort of communications net, though. You know, if you if you know if it turns out you you find a road, ooh, we found a road. I mean, okay, it's a road of some sort. We don't know if it's intel- from intelligent creatures or something, but we found a road, and it goes that way, and that way is away from you. Then you're going to need either another pathfinder to work as relay, right. or yeah, it's going to do a smaller circle because it needs because it can't go too far like the like the other pathfinder, which has been going round and round and round. And you do need redundancy because. Uh, things break. But you're going to have to have a reason to want to go that far. So that's what I'm saying is it is important for you to get good mapping because, you know, as, as, as wonderful as all these worlds are out there, if you can't see what's worth spending your time on, then, you know, and I don't know what kind of, uh, of packages there are on things. I know that they use some of them for like, I mean, mapping for resources, oil, um, uh, I, I don't I'm not sure what all you oh, yeah. can detect from orbit as, as far as a package is concerned, but you can detect that an awful lot uh, depending on, on what you're looking for. Uh, just by uh, look at the resource mapping of the moon, they they know they pretty much have mapped out the chemical the chemical uh, nature of the moon based on reflected light. So they've been able to actually do the take a spectrograph of the moon and say, okay, here we have this stuff is rich in titanium. This over here isn't this, and they actually have things mapped out they can tell where things are and what what resources are there and they've done the same thing for uh mars using with the mars reconnaissance orbiter and i think mars express have both done that kind of mapping 
Uh, now, Venus, unfortunately, we can't see down far enough, so we don't know what's there. Um, same thing with Titan. We can't tell. We ain't going there, there either. <laughs> yeah, we ain't going there. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, these worlds were hooked up for some reason. Uh, you know, it could be that, say, say out there, there's Gleesey 667C, uh, um, little c. It's a terrestrial world. It's only 1.3 Gs. It's the right size, and it's not too cold, not too hot. Hey, you know, why, why are they here? There could be life there in that world. Now, it may be pond scum, but there may be life in that world. When the Tremeller made the portals, remember, they did it centuries, upon, you know, millennia upon millennia ago. At the time, there might have been life on the planet. It's since died out, and it's like they're going to these worlds, and they're like, okay, why was the portal put here? There's nothing here. Well, because life died out 70,000 years ago. When the portal was put there, yeah, it had plenty of life. So I could see that's one of the reasons why a portal might have been put on a world, but a modern-day person is going to be looking going, okay, we're here on an empty planet, devoid of life. I'm willing to believe that there might be only one planet and a platform that actually goes to a world that might be of interest to the Tamellar, and the rest of them are just random locations in the solar system because of the algorithm that the... Uh, the thing was doing no one says all those star platforms are actually star platforms you could also have a situation where you have a rogue planet that a rogue planet is a planet not attached to a star and we have spotted some of them we actually have spotted rogue planets and they're usually gas giants and they usually and then they may actually have their own little you know, collection of moons with them there could be a star platform that's not connected to, connected to a star it's actually connected to a rogue planet and all the portals go to various you know, moons around that around that rogue planet, which would be very interesting in, interesting for you know astronomers and so forth to even get a chance to go to that place. Hmm. I mean, I could see where maybe they'd say, "Hey, it's a rogue planet that's worth setting up a, a, a platform to." Uh, but most of the times, I think that and this is my personal opinion. I think that they're going to want to have at least one planet going somewhere where either life existed. Uh, or does exist now. And that's and the reason for that is because this is the Tamellern. They're bioengineers. You know, that's what gets them excited is life. And as smart as the Tamellern are, and you know, we know that they're godlike smart, but the point still is is that evolution, having millions of years to try out different ideas, uh may find come up with a combination that the Tamellern may have never thought about, and they might find something out there that really jazzes them up. I was looking at the list of uh, nearest terrestrial exoplanets. Uh, there are one, two, three, four, five within 36 light years that are, well, terrestrial, Earth-like. Uh, some are hot, hot worlds, some are frozen worlds, a couple are listed as meso mesoplanets, which means they're about medium size and then about the right temperature, maybe a little cold, maybe not. But they're all terrestrial, and they all have the potential to maybe be a place for life. And that's five worlds within you know within forty light years of Earth. Here's a question, Paul. This whole thing is set up by the Tamellar, and they're totally into all kinds of weird, crazy bioengineering. Okay, now, do you think it might be part of their whole plan? When they go and they map uh, a platform to a, a star, that if it doesn't have any life on any of its planets, they might seed it with something that it could live there. 
and let it run its course while it's you know be, after they seed it as part of the standard fringe design. I suppose they could probably use it as a genetic lab- laboratory. Yeah, I mean these are worlds in which nothing's alive on it. But you're a super engineer and you can like create things that live off of solar radiation. The thing automatically tosses a, a random package through when it makes the connection and things start growing there. What do you think? So their own version of terraforming. What but why wouldn't they? Is there some reason they wouldn't? Is there some reason they wouldn't? Just thinking about the Tamelar, is there some reason why they wouldn't do this? There's no lack of, of, of resources. I mean, if they wanted to totally reform the planet, that would be a, a, a bigger thing. But if they just decided to, to seed the planet with, with some stuff so that you know, things might grow there and get interesting in a couple thousand years, it just seems logical to me that having the, the capacity to do so, they might automatically build it into the system to do so. I suppose if the system's doing it automatically itself. Yeah. But I'm thinking if when you've got all these other worlds where you open a portal and it's on a world, you really don't need to run around and seeding dead ones. It just seems like a time, a, kind of a waste of time and energy if you already have a million million worlds that are inhabited with life on them. I always envision these as really some place to go mining for resources where you weren't going to upset the natives. There was no natives to upset. I always thought of the star platform as your giant mining concern at the end of your node. That you could shift it around and you could shift it to an asteroid belt and collect nickel-iron asteroids. You could shift to a gas giant and siphon off helium-3 for your fusion plants. You could shift to an ice world and, and siphon off water for someplace else that needs it, especially if you got the big system running. So I never really got that the star platform was some more for exploration and more habitable places when you have so many habitable places on primes and alts and systems already. So I always thought of it as the great collector at the end of the node where you pulled in resources that supplied the node anything they could ever need without harming the environments of the other portals on the other platforms. Yeah, see, Paul, that was my thing I always saw was if you're in fringe, if you are doing a, a typical IDEC campaign, the only star platforms you're going to ever be going on are your own. Why go on other people's star platforms? I mean, that, it's just usually the star platforms, I see them as not inter node, but intra node exploration. Exploration within your own node where you don't leave your alt platform and it's just the people from the prime or maybe the alternates going down there and just mining whatever it is like you mentioned helium 3 water nickel iron just to get these resources from it to them still an unlimited source because you got all these worlds and it's going to take you you know decades or centuries to exhaust everything so yeah go to it i mean even uh, what asteroids are the ones that have nickel iron in them too yeah, it's the most common thing, but you also have, yeah, denser metals like titanium. Bankrupt the planet, bringing back one gold asteroid. Just the gold off of, uh, an average size asteroid, just from the, the part, even like 75 uh, parts per million, just the gold off of one normal asteroid would probably crash the gold gold standard at this point. 
that stuff that's common in the asteroid belt that is a rare metals on Earth. Gold sinks to the bottom of the uh, sinks down to the bottom of the Earth because it's heavy. Iridium is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, iridium, the, the the platinum metal group. Now the big system wasn't created initially. I mean, initially they were just putting stars to you know these platforms together. They got the node thing going, the automatic machinery. But I think the big system came online later. So, what do you think about the possibility of find if you if what you say is true, Paul, that they were mining these uh, nearby stars for materials and bringing it back to the primes? What do you think about the possibility of finding some ginormous extraction machinery on some of these uh, star worlds, just sitting there idly by or or rusting away because they're no longer in use, but they were at one time part of the uh, of the system providing materials to the Commonwealth. By your command. <laughs> Cylons. Or the or what was that the the planet eater from Star Trek. I don't see any reason why there would you wouldn't walk out into an, an enormous five mile long habitat in an asteroid belt that's nothing but a fusion forge. An asteroid stuffed in one end and it's it's melted down to its darn near molecular state separated by by gravity and centrifugal force into alloys and come out the other end in in a pure form that you then collect and transport back through the portal to ship to another world. Think of it as a relief valve or escape valve. You don't have a reason to go back down there to the transit platform and move to another node and attack them when you got an unlimited supply of resources on your own at the end of your own node. It kind of keeps everybody peaceful. If I don't need to go next door and raid the neighbors because I don't have nickel iron. But I think, yeah, I think that if you come out the star platform, you're going to find some amazing arcologies and habitats that might be sitting there waiting for somebody to hit the on switch. And it could be that every one of those eight platforms, one of those worlds, has life on it. That's what I assume, John. I assume that one of them do. Yeah, and but not but not in life as we know it, you know. Maybe maybe the, one world doesn't use DNA; it uses something else. Another world uses something else, and you know, and it comes down to them to Melon. We're connecting to those because, well, it's something new to play with, and every one of them's new because there's it's the amount of random, uh, you know, random abilities to uh, for life to form. Uh, yeah, it could be. These are all sources for new new forms of genetic information that they they were able to play with. Okay, I just assume that that it would be a or like the resources. That's your big mining concern. But I can see where you would you would want to have, go to maybe a habitable world that supports life because it gets out of your own universe or away from your own system and such like that, where you have somewhere to go in case of a stellar catastrophe. So if your system is going to be supernovaed or hit with a gamma ray pulse, going out the star platform and saving your civilization on a whole another 40 light years away would save an, you know, at least the history and some of the something about a civilization. Yeah. Though uh, if, it, if, it, if it is a gamma ray pulse, then you have to make sure you go to the right world forty light years away. If you go to the wrong one, you're just simply standing in the you're staying forty light years closer to it. Uh, <laughs> um, well, remember they're like a laser beam, John. They shoot down an axis, a pole. Yeah, the gamma ray burst is like a laser beam light years across uh, when it finally gets to us. Anyway, that's just an example of a stellar catastrophe. I 
they did still a platform because they were curious what the stars looked like and they wanted to, you know, you know, every time they went to a new new universe, they wanted to see what it looks like out there, do a random sample, random sampling of the uh, worlds out there, and see what they were like. Or maybe they just go out, use the star platform. They go out on their, they go from their node, they go out to the star platform, look around, and go, hey, you know what? The one we picked, we connected now, is pretty poor. Let's let's disassemble this node and reassemble it on this using this system that's forty year light years away because it's much better. It's got two habitable worlds and a rich ring. So let's close this one down and move shop. That could be just all it is. There are the alternate ge- geological Earths, where basically Earth is not as we know it. You know, for all we know, maybe it is another star. <laughs> within, there are, G, there are G, type G stars within 40 light years of Earth. For all we know, maybe that's you're really not around Sol. You're actually around something else, someone else at that point. <laughs> When the algorithm forms a platform, the whole node thing, the Tamerlan come along, they look at it, they go out, the, they, they inspect the, the prime, they inspect the alts, they inspect the system, they go out the star platform, and they sample the eight platforms that are out there, and they decide that, say, portal number three on the star platform is a much better system for their purposes. So they go back and they close down that whole node and shift it out to that for, that whole system that's 40 light years away circling a whole nother star are you talking about making it a prime right just like they go into they enter a universe on that node and they say okay this prime is is poor it's a it's an alt geological with a with a with a weak sun it's frozen it's cold it's airless it's a no earth yeah it's a no earth it's not it, even if we chuck blue blue green algae through the door and give it two million years, we're still going to have two million years worth of nothing. So let's close this one down, and we're going to shift the whole prime to this other system that we discovered through the star platform. And so they somebody goes to an engineering panel, and, and a group of Tremorland techs move the whole thing. Yeah, they put the key in, turn it 90 degrees, and... As Richard would say, he wrote, they rotate it. They just keep rotating around until, boom, that star is now the prime platform. Constant about the fringe paths is that every prime is, as Jay said, the third rock from our sun. Whatever passes for Earth, that is the basis by which the prime is made, and then it goes from there. All system star, star, star hubs system. Yes. Wasn't well, that? I thought that was just the default setting. Well, the idea was is that they were trying to put together all of the different ways that humanity, in whatever form it took, was created to make the Commonwealth. That was their philosophical point of view for creating the Commonwealth in the first place. Now, if you have a world which nothing lives on it, okay, then I can see you have a basis for saying, well, this really isn't serving our purpose. We can go and either rotate this to an alternate that does have life on it, or a more radical thing, which would be to rotate it all the way out to a star platform. But it's not the, the standard default because, again, the, the platform setup, as we declared it, is the most stable form of creating these links between dimensions, which is why it's done the way it is. But it doesn't mean that somebody who wanted to come out and do special engineering couldn't go ahead and make a, a prime link to someplace else that 
that had a more interesting world on it. It's a game. You could do whatever you want to to it. And these guys are godlike in their uh, engineering abilities. So there's really no reason why we'd say they couldn't. It's, but you're right. It certainly isn't the default behavior. Yeah, I, I will bring up the one alt around Earth Prime that has two, two sons. For, there's nothing saying that that soul... And that's another, you know, star. That's this an interloper. We may be actually talking. That's two different. That that's a different star system. That's made. It was turned into an alt for some reason. I don't think so, John. I think it's just it's it's just a, a binary star in the location where our sun is. Yeah, I think that's all it is. I mean, that just follows the rationale that we said for the the, the setup for the whole thing. We're going to assume that in a lot of cases where there might be life out there. Uh, Paul thinks that it's just going to be a big engineering mind concern, and that's possible too. But if it is true, there'll be a big robot culture out there doing this, or there's going to be life there doing the job of mining the solar system for the gods. When you got an army of, of robots out there doing the mining for you, you don't have to worry about a rebellion of robots on the fringe path. If they're all queller, they just simply do their job as their last program. Yeah. I was just imagining an army of Cylons marching through the portal to get you. It's slowly building up this big chrome pile <laughs> about two feet inside the door. Well, you get the same problem with Queller because as soon as they go through, the, go, through the, go through the portal, they fall apart. So, you know. Right. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. They, they just, Is that a big secret? No. Is that? Oh, that's not a, Okay. I was not aware of this. I was. I thought maybe John just gave a spoiler. Yeah, there's two different kinds of robots that are listed. The first robot were ones that were more toward the traditional robots that we think of, and they would walk through and they would just fall over and they would de- they deactivate. They would never reactivate. This, the ones we introduced in the in the D20 version were the Queller, and those are the ones that look like a stick person, you know, with a circle for a head, and those disintegrate because they're more organic. I still want to put little jack-in-the-box hats on them. I saw the picture of one, and I, I immediately thought of jack-in-the-box. I mean, they can adapt themselves and make changes, you know. Wait, do they adapt themselves? Well, they have to be adapted, so you will find... Right. Um, you will find, like, a queller. If you're walking through a, a, a farming world, a, a Tremelon farming world, and all of a sudden there's this eight-foot-tall thing with sides for arms... Slashing through the corn, he won't hurt you. He, you know, he's programmed not to hurt, you know, intelligent beings. As long as he sees you. Oh, yeah, as long as he sees you, yeah. I saw the impression something else had to program the queller to make them change. They have to go to a mother queller. Right, something had to make them change their machinery to go do something else. Yeah, she, she grows a package for them that they then go and replace parts of their bodies with. a lot. That's when they actually get a, a, get a real mouth and start eating to grow the, grow the new parts. Then the mouth falls off and they don't have to worry about it anymore. They just simply hook up to the uh, feeding tubes and feed themselves. <laughs> right. But, you know, the queller are, are a lot more bioengineered rather than being more technological, which is one of the reasons they were introduced because it sounded more like the kind of thing that a super you know, bioengineering race might create versus the uh, more uh, Robbie the Robot kind of critters that we were in, running that were running around the the worlds on the fringe paths before them. If there are robots, good old fashioned robots on the world, that they're Tremelin, they could be you know Commonwealth. You know, you know, all these worlds are yours. You know, and then so there's a Commonwealth you know excavation program going on in one of these worlds. It's not been told to shut off. 
So yeah, there's these piles and piles of metal just waiting to be picked up and sent through the big system, and they there's just piling up at this point because there's no there's no big system anymore to take it away from them. Because the uh, the Queller were organic, I had not realized they didn't they couldn't walk through the portal. I always assumed that they could come and go from the platform at will if that was part of their programming. No, there, there's no race currently in the French Pass that can go in and out except for the Kegak and, and the Mallard. Those are the only, the only bioengineered races that we currently have listed officially that can pa- pass through the portal and still remain intact. Pangolin. Slarg. Oh, well, yeah, okay, what am I saying? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Slarg and, and the Pangolis are, are both bioengineered. And so. the, um, and the um, I can't remember their names. The, the treehouse treehouse scenes. Rupians. Rupians? Rupians, yes. Yeah, so that's why I thought the Queller could come and go. I wasn't aware they fell apart as soon as they came out of a, plot, a portal. That, I thought that was part of the reason they were organic. But to me, it always seemed that the, 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 um, the Queller and the robots... They're they're pretty much designed to be workers where they are, so I just think that they're just they were never designed to be able to handle uh, you know the shutdown you know the the bio shock of going through uh, and and being able to survive. It might have been done intentionally. It might have been done so they couldn't be harvested during the war and sent off as shock troops in, in an alien war. Yeah, would you want to have some? program to be swinging sides all over running at you totally silent yeah that no be great psychological warfare but no i would yeah so there's a lot of decisions about the fringe pass that uh you know really weren't part of the original design it was literally added on to uh keep the war from becoming even more genocidal than it already was hmm yeah This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.